When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Dylan was, he was a revolutionary, man. The way that, the way that Elvis freed your body, Bob freed your mind. This is Bob Dylan, about man and God and law. I'll weep the sons of bondage whom he ventured out to save And though he lost his life in his struggle to free the slaves His truth is marching on Washington is not a place to live in. The rents are high, the food is bad, the dust is disgusting, and the morals are deplorable. Go west, young man. Go west and grow up with the country. So said deaf journalist Horace Greeley in 1833. Well, Joseph Smith did it, tussling and troublemaking and breaking one set of tablets while carrying another all the way out west to the Promised Land so he could sing the Book of Mormon, a foreign song we learned in Utah. Native people slaughtered. Gold rushes. Woody Guthrie's people's ancestors all going west. And John Brown did it too after the word of God came to him in Hudson, Ohio, town of his birth, and Kent, as in Kent State, Ohio, and Albany, New York, and Springfield, Massachusetts as well. God, Brown came to understand in his calling, wanted him to dedicate his life to ending slavery and that he should be ready to die for it. They hung him for a traitor, themselves a traitorous crew, but his truth still marches on. Which, eventually, he did. While it wasn't quite a shot heard round the world, when John Brown took guerrilla warfare and fire and brimstone political persuasion out west to bleeding Kansas in 1855, it was Kansas's civil war that had begun to fully expose the wound that Bob Dylan has called America's original sin, slavery. And it was this wound that would soon nearly bleed out the entire country less than a century old, and then, like a deep laceration that would not close or heal, this eternal infection and inflection point of slavery and racism continue to flame up and endanger the United States body politic again and again. Kansas was the West of Go West back then, not a flyover state, not yet the home turf of fascist, racist, glee and flea club chair Josh Howley and John Brown, already not a young man, He headed back east to Old Virginia, to Harper's Ferry, in 1859. When they caught him, after the raid that was meant to shake down slaveholders to their senses, Ralph Waldo Emerson said of John Brown that he will make the gallows glorious like the cross. Glory, glory, hallelujah, his truth still marches on. Kansas revealed the state of permanent dis-ease in America, an overture to the Civil War, because when it had been invited to the Union, Kansas had been given a choice and was split right down the middle about it. Blue versus red. 
pro-slavery versus abolitionist, border ruffians versus anti-slavery free staters, and everyone, of course, with God on our side. Way out west, on the new frontier, where so many had gone to explore and build or escape, Kansas just couldn't decide. Just like today, a century and a half later, which side of history did it want to be on? John Brown's or Josh Hawley's? Harriet Tubman's or QAnon's? Frederick Douglass or the ex-president who had never heard of Frederick Douglass? White supremacy or by and for all of the people? The choice seems so obvious, it's not even clear how it could ever have been a question at all, but somehow, devilishly, the question remains in some ways just as open now as it was then. And out there in Kansas, when Auntie M and Uncle Henry's people were just establishing their homestead, and there's no place like it, as we all know, Dr. Brewster M. Hiley wrote the lyrics for the poem My Western Home in 1874, nine years after the end of the Civil War and the assassination of Lincoln, in the midst of fables of the Reconstruction and the planting of the poison seeds of Jim Crow. My Western Home would become the Kansas State song, and it goes like this. Oh, give me a home where the buffalo roam, where the deer and the antelope Where seldom is heard a discouraging word And the skies are not cloudy all day Home, home on the range Where the deer and the antelope play We've said it before and we'll say it again. If Bob Dylan says in Chronicles Volume 1 that the Civil War, the lynchings on the American linchpin of slavery, is the wound from which he draws the precious ink for everything he would ever write, well, the cross and crossroad where John Brown was hung and millions of slaves were X'd out by evil, then there is in America, in the discouraging words of deaf, cynic, abolitionist Americanist poet Warren Zevon, disorder in the house built right into every square foot of the blueprint for America. The question of home, whose is it? Where is it? How do you build it? How do you get there and feel there and why? Is the starting point for understanding the essential paradox of America. That home on the range, that home of murder most foul where you need to rearrange their faces and give them all another name understanding the home of the self and soul in and of America is, maybe beyond any other, the elusive answer to the question of questions Bob Dylan directs to every bad boy and bad girl Rolling Stone live or dead. How does it feel to be on your own, no direction home? For our purposes, to understand this unresolved and intimately personal mythic American question is to understand the creative furnace of consternation and inspiration that churns at the heart of Dylan's work, and as such, churns at the heart of rock and roll, and as such, churns at the heart of America. And that's why we are going to need two bites at the apple of the Tree of Knowledge to end season one with this final episode, which comes in two parts. Hey! 
disorder in the house The tub running over Plaster falling down in pieces by the couch of pain Disorder in the house Time to duck and cover Helicopters hover over rough terrain Friends, it's where you hang your hat. But sometimes, like Gil Scott Heron evangelized, it's where the hate is. There's no place like it, but you're still a long, long way from it. It makes you sick. It's so sweet. And your memories from back there, well, they are sometimes as strong as any memories that you will ever have. I'm Dr. Stephen Daniel Arnoff a scholar of rock and roll, and I am your host. You surely remember the address, the smell of fresh mowed grass, or the bakery down the street. And we'll bet you dollars to donuts. You remember your phone number from that place, too. We're talking about home. Now, if you're asking, are we there yet? Well, we ask you back. Can you hold it? So hold it. We're almost there. Welcome to Episode 9 of Bob Dylan about man and God and law, bringing it all back home, part one. Well, you know, don't you care what happened, I told you. Every telling has a tailing, and that's the he and the she of it. Look, look, the dust is growing. My branches lofty have taken root, and my cold chair has gone ashly. Hello. What age is that? It soon is late. Tis endless now since I or one last saw water hoses clock. They took it asunder, I heard them say, When will there be a family? Oh, my back, my back, my back. Today and tomorrow. Every telling has a tailing, and that's the he and the she of it. So spake James Joyce. Deaf, uber-narrative, exiled Irish master in Finnegan's Wake. While Joseph Campbell cut his academic teeth on the study of Finnegan's Wake, Joyce's final explosive work published at the start of World War II, while Campbell made the phrase monomyth and the concept of myth and the hero's journey a part of popular culture and consciousness from the Grateful Dead to Star Wars, it was Joyce's phrase to coin right there in Finnegan's Wake. The term, monomyth, which describes the archetypal plot serving as a kind of scaffolding for the collective unconscious, a singular, universal narrative basket that carries Odysseus and Jesus and Huckleberry Finn and Seta from Toni Morrison's Beloved. It's the cycle of a birth, calling, discovery, battle, glory, and death common to all heroes. And it's also Carl Jung's template for the cycles that any human soul must travel. It's in this monomyth, revealed in the wake of Finnegan and rejoiced upon in Joyce, that we're placing Bob Dylan's story as a figure of America alongside the configuration of songs and figures he's crafted to explain America and the self, if not his self. And the monomyth is 
Above all, the story of bringing one's soul and self back home. Getting home, at least in Dylan's words, has been the point and the destination of all of this all along. I had ambitions to uh, set out and find, like an odyssey of going home somewhere. I'm set, I'm set out to find uh, this home that, that I'd left a while back and couldn't remember exactly where it was, but I was uh, on my way there. And uh, encountering what I encountered on the, on the way was how I envisioned it all. I, I didn't really have any ambition at all. I was born very far from where I'm supposed to be, and so I'm on my way home. Everything's flowing all at the same time. I live on a boulevard of crime. The playing field of this universal adventure, personal, creative, political, musical, and mythic, is America. The name of the game is Landing on Home Base, both for the artist, Dylan, and for the playing field itself. America is about finding in her through her and for her, a home. All the old queens, all the old queens from all my past lives. I carry four pistols and two large knives. I'm a man of contradictions. I'm a man of many moods. I contain a multitude. Do I contradict myself? Very well. Then I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. Be curious, not judgmental. I celebrate myself and sing myself. I too am not a bit tamed. I too am untranslatable. I sound my barbaric yap over the roofs of the world. Walt Whitman. He spoke of himself and his country in the same breath, as the same being. Both contained multitudes, one within the other, back again. As we explain Dylan and his work in context of the American story, there's no avoiding the multitudinousness of it all. There's no avoiding jumping back and forth like Walt Whitman between country and fantasy, personal and collective, mythic, lyrical, pseudobiographical, and historical. I contain multitudes. Imagine the Dylan-esque American act of bringing it all back home as a kind of narrative DNA for everything. No matter how it's manifest, no matter its perceived destiny, the source material always stays the same. And so too, whatever the vehicle, the destination, which is home. Like any great play... The monomyth, every telling tale, takes place in three acts. And everybody knows, to paraphrase Alfred Hitchcock about first acts with revolvers, if the first act takes place at home, you know where you will eventually wind up as you round the third. Home. About a man riding across the desert and it starred Gregory Peck. He was shot down by a hungry kid trying to make a name for himself. 
townspeople wanted to crush that kid down and string him up by the neck. Well, the marshal, now he beat that kid to a bloody pulp. As the dying gunfighter lay on the sun and gasped for his last breath. Turn him loose, let him go, let him say he outdrew me, fair and square. I want him to feel what it's like to every moment face his death. Well, I keep seeing this stuff, and it just comes a rolling in. And you know it blows right through me like a balling chain. You know, I can't believe we've lived so long, and I'm still so far apart. So we're looking at Dylan's heroic journey woven through his life and his songs, associatively, without too much concern for fact or fiction, because rock stars, Dylan more than any, are about creating, living, and composing myths. High truth is our goal here, but telling the truth in myth is often much less important than the truth embedded in the story. In other words, this episode, part one and two, must be taken like all of them, (laughs) with a grain of salt. With this disclaimer claimed, what is the map or the blueprint for the monomyth, this hero's tale in three acts? Well, act one is the hero's separation from the humdrum world most of us know. The stages of this first act are ordinary world, the call to adventure, the refusal of the call, the meeting with the mentor, the crossing of the threshold, and the approach to her or his calling. Act two, part one, is descent, the hero's central ordeal. Act one and act two, part one, of the monomyth which we've just listed, these are the elements we're going to trace in Dylan's life and song this time, in our part one. Next time, in part two, we'll unpack act two, part two, of the monomyth. That's the hero's initiation, which includes the reward, the road back, and resurrection. Finally comes Act 3, truly bringing it all back home. A return of the hero with an elixir or magic or a revelation that would be required that the hero in his or her calling was called to bring. in the backyard hanging close. She had a red hair tied back. She saw us come rolling up in a trail of dust. There was a movie I seen one time. I think I sat through it twice. I don't remember who I was or where I was bound. All, all I remember about it was it starred Gregory Peck. So Bob Dylan sings in Brownsville Girl. Like the repetition of a favorite character like Gregory Peck in a story that mixes itself with the classics that preceded it, Plot lines of heroes always feel a bit familiar. They blur together. Also quoting Brownsville Girl, Dylan says, Oh, if there's an original thought out there, I could use it right now. Repetition is the key to mythic stories. They're comforting in their predictability, just like coming home. 
repeating a familiar plotline with color and flair, and her or his own unique narrative thrills and skills is how a teller of tales makes a tale special. The original thought out there is the teller's charismatic twist on the distinctly unoriginal plotline, the monoman. Something about that movie, though, that I just can't get it out of my head. But I can't remember why I was in it, or what part I was supposed to play. All I remember about it was is Gregory Peck and the way that people move. And a lot of them there seem to be looking my way. Back in episode one, Salvation, we offered a conceit that behind all of Bob Dylan's creative vision, as he said to Nat Henhoff, jesting seriously, and Todd Haynes riffed upon in I'm Not There, that behind all he does is a kind of seeking for salvation. Healing the unforgiving, unforgiven wound of the Civil War, salvation and coming home. These are all a kind of shared conceit here. The idea that universal and personal concerns can merge, and that this is the essence of myth, what Campbell called a public dream. Home is the resolution. No alibi. You went out on a limb to testify for me, and you said I was with you. Then when I saw you break down in front of the judge and cry real tears, it was the best that I saw Maybe this is not the original thought you need right now, but this is the setup. This is the core narrative of the Bob Dylan story. Oh, if there's an original thought out there, I could use it right now. You know, I feel pretty good, but that ain't saying much. I could feel a whole lot better. If you were just here by my side to show me how. Well, I'm standing in line in the rain to see a movie starring Gregory Peck. Yeah, but you know it's not the one that I had in mind. He's got a new one out now. I don't even know what it's about. But I'll see him in anything, so I'll stand in line. Now... Let's begin the journey. And it's back to the Iron Range we go. One by one, no crowding, there's plenty of room for everyone and everything. From the Mesabi Range in Minnesota to the cold fields of Kentucky. From the steel mills of Pittsburgh to the wheat fields of Nebraska. These are the long horizons of the Midwest. 
my name It ain't nothing My age, it means less The country I come from Is called the Midwest I started and brought up there The laws to abide And that the land that I live in Has got on its side Most of the world's population and wealth is found in regions near the sea. Why is America's Midwest an exception to this general rule? To examine the wealth of this region, we must first look at its land. Thousands of years ago, it was leveled by glacial ice. The vegetation which followed the ice left most of the land with a rich soil, ideal for agriculture. Now the Midwest has a rich dairy belt in the north to supply milk to the cities of the region and cheese and butter for export to other With God on its side. The Spanish-American war had its day. The hero comes from an ordinary world, familiar to all of us. Movie theaters, dances, baseball games, trips to see the cousins, and God on our side. We've spoken in previous episodes about the hard or lonely edge to the Iron Range. Dylan has said that he was captivated by songs about death early on because he came from a a dying town. There were strange circumstances back home, too. Indeed, the entire town of Hibbing was picked up and moved in order to make room for the world's largest iron ore pit, visible even from outer space, and the wealth produced from those resources stripped from the earth resulted in a public high school as ornate as any in the world. So there's Minnesota nice and an undercurrent of Minnesota cold or untold and an isolation Dylan and his friends from childhood have spoken of. And there's also the added layer of Dylan being bored to a Jewish family, tight-knit and seemingly both integrated in and among its neighbors, and also spread out in other communities across the state. But still, being Jewish was different enough for Dylan from the Midwestern norm to make him want to change his name so that the rest of the world wouldn't block him from his calling. We've talked about that before as well. We've spoken with Richard Thomas about how the mysteries of ancient Rome, both the sword and sandal epics of Dylan's uncle's movie houses, may have opened up a crack into the classic calling from out of the Midwest. But in the end, it was not Hermes who tapped Dylan on the shoulder to turn his attention to a mythic mission amidst an ordinary life. Yes, there was some Gregory Peck. Hollywood, yes, and literature, as we've heard many times in that Nobel lecture and elsewhere, but the true disembodied voice that served the calling to call our hero out from his ordinary home to seek his ultimate adventure was the disembodied voice of the radio. 
as Clinton Halen cites in his prodigiously researched Behind the Shades biography of Dylan, local DJs and faraway voices that careamed up Highway 61 from elsewhere filled the heads of Dylan and his friends with sounds including Little Richard's Tutti Fruity. It was his taste of the rock and roll life playing piano for a few days with the young Bobby V in North Dakota. It was Buddy Holly catching Dylan's eye and Dylan seeing a halo around Holly's head that called him to leave home. Hermes, the god of wealth, luck, fertility, language, thieves, and travel. Well, Hermes came as music, and all the rest was her mystery. No more ordinary world. And this is the second stop in a hero's journey. From the ordinary world to the call to adventure. A hero is told, like in 1978's Senor Tales of Yankee Power, overturn those tables and disconnect these cables. Set out to the great unknown. He's called because he knows something great is happening there. He just don't know what it is. I was young when I left home Thought I'd been out of rambling around I never wrote a letter to my home To my home Lord, to my home And I never wrote a letter to my home Moses was cast into the Nile, discovered by Pharaoh's daughter, and raised in Pharaoh's castle. Jesus' mother was a virgin. Athena burst forth from her father's forehead. Heroes do not have a typical birth. They are marked from the moment that they come into the world as someone outside of the norm. While like every family and every child of every family, Dylan's had its quirks, but it would be hard to say that the Zimmermans were unusual as a hard-striving Jewish family in a Midwestern town trying to get the best for themselves and their kids, trying to dream out their own version of the American dream. But Dylan told his tale very differently than that. He made up his own myth of himself, his own miraculous coming of age, his own creation myth, imagined his own adventure. To match the mythic quest, he wanted others to believe he was traveling upon. In my life in a stolen moment, he wrote, and I still can't find the time to go back and see why and where I started doing what I'm doing. I can't tell you the influences because there's too many to mention and I might leave one out and it wouldn't be fair. Woody Guthrie, sure. Big Joe Williams, yeah, it's easy to remember those names. But what about the faces you can't find again? What about the curbs and corners and cutoffs that drop out of sight and fall behind? What about the records you hear but one time? What about the coyote's call and the bulldog's bark? What about the tomcat's meow and milk cow's moo and the train whistle's moan? Open up your eyes and ears and you're influenced and there's nothing you can do about it. Hibbick's a good old town. I ran away from it when I was 10, 12, 13, 15, 15 and a half, 17 and 18. Been caught and brought back all but once. I played on a track More would come and whip me back On them trestles down by old Jim McKay's When I pay the debt I owe To the commissary store 
I will pawn my watch and chain and go home. Go home. Lord, Lord, Lord. And we pawn the watch and chain and go home. Dylan was, it said, enraged when journalists revealed he was not a boxcar hopping urchin called by nature and lead belly, but uh, rather a Midwestern middle-class Jew in 1964. But holding tight to mystique and mystery has remained a trademark of his public persona ever since he had one. The same is true of the characters he creates. Lily Rosemary in the Jack of Hearts, Brownsville Girl, Joey, everyone born, like most heroes, in ways strange. In the year of who knows when. I don't like it in the wind I'm gonna go back home again But I can't go He lives an ordinary life, his own Red Hook, Brooklyn. But he gets called to adventure, and then comes the refusal of the call. The next stage of Act One of the Mono. As is the case of our parsing of Dylan's canon with themes without regard for chronology throughout the podcast, there's a lack of linearity in elements of the monomyth as it plays out in Dylan's story and songs. When the call comes to the hero, it's often the case that he or she does not at first answer it. For Dylan, the refusal of the call comes as one of the built-in features of both his way of doing things and what his audience seems to demand from him. From the simple trope of concert attendees complaining that they could not make heads or tails of what songs Dylan was singing in the obscure arrangements and delivery from the 1980s to the long delay in responding to the Nobel Prize announcement and to showing up as a guest on Pawn Stars to scoffing at the concept of being voice of his generation. Oh, even though he so much was Dylan's creed, even as he fulfills a calling for striking out truth and song, is to deny any and all the satisfaction of pinning him to a particular role. He refuses to be predictable and rejects the call for anyone else's standards. And this in and of itself is a pattern that Dylan lives in loops that return over and over again in the progressions of his journey. He advances through a hero's stages, both he himself and the characters he models, gaining wisdom through trials and sharing back hard-won insights as they are gathered, but he repeats those loops again and again. Refusing the call again and again is one of those circles that remains unbroken. Out the streets. 
thus far in Act 1 of the monomyth, we've spoken of the ordinary world where Dylan must break free, a place where both the good guys and the bad guys see with God on our side. The call to adventure in which he says, I was young when I left home. And the refusal of the call, a refusal repeated over and over again that we'll get to in blaring sound and technicolor in just a few moments. It's peace and quiet that we need to go back to work again. But next in the monomyth, before this conflict peaks, is the meeting with the mentor. I'm out here a thousand miles from my home. Walking a road, other men have gone down. I'm seeing your world of people and things. Here, Popper. Obi-Wan Kenobi for Luke Skywalker. Diego Rivera for Frida Kahlo. Socrates for Plato. Hey, hey, Woody Guthrie, I wrote you a song. And Woody Guthrie. Had a funny old world that's coming along. And Lead Belly, and Buddy Holly, and Johnny Cash, Seems and so many more for Bob Dylan. It looks like it's a dying, and it's hardly been born. Hey, Woody Guthrie, but I know that you know. We saw how mentors inhabited Dylan's consciousness in stages in episode 6, and we'll note here as part of the pattern of self-mythologizing how Dylan in Chronicles, a creative act of both raising up and obscuring his biography, how Dylan makes up an ethereal, idealized couple of mentors to, to provide color to his own tale. Here's to Cisco and Sonny and Lead Belly too. Ray Gooch and Chloe Keel, deaf-invented mentors, had an all-time, all-world bookshelf and record collection that showed Dylan the way. When we get to Murder Most Foul, years and years later, a kind of elegy for the entire homeward-bound journey that Dylan undertakes, we'll hear the rapture with musical mentors and influences that he publicly claims. I'm leaving tomorrow, but I could leave today. Somewhere down the road someday. And at a particularly tender moment of searching, suddenly a spiritual neophyte, Dylan attaches himself to a man in the mid-70s who was, perhaps at the time, the world's most famous evangelical Christian of them all, outside of Bob Dylan. I've never had more faith in America than I do today. We have an America that in Bob Dylan's phrase is busy being born, not busy dying. And I was honored because Bob Dylan asked me to go out in the garden, as a matter of fact, and have a private conversation with him. And the only questions he asked me were questions about my Christian faith and what it meant to me and basic principles of it. When I first met Jimmy, first thing he did was quote my songs back to me. And it was the first time that I realized my songs had reached into, uh, basically into the establishment world. And I had no experience in that realm. 
Never seen that side, so it made me a little uneasy. He uh, put my mind at ease. Mentors offer a certain kind of map, a confidence, a means to ensure that the emergent hero is part of a chain of tradition. And then, stage next, with mentors sought and found, the hero crosses a threshold. We can imagine the scene of Bob Dylan arriving on a snowy day in 1961 in a frozen New York City, or his first meeting with Woody Guthrie, or the first Carnegie Hall concert, or a thousand and one other moments when a nobody with a made-up name leaped to the lead of his era. This is the next stage of the journey, the next stage of the monomyth, crossing the threshold. It's here at the threshold, the hero hearing his or her own calling, where destiny begins to play itself out, and the hero's efforts become most visceral. It's a stage of allies and enemies, where the growth in power from a special gifted nobody to a singular somebody forces the energy of the world to take sides. Allies, Joan Baez for a spell, the Hawks, Bobby Nerwith, Robert Shelton, Johnny Cash, they all line up with Dylan, defend his mission and destiny, and affirm that he matters. And then there are the Mr. Joneses, the ones whose cheeses have been moved, who set up barriers against the hero, casting him toward a battle with the fates. And appearing in 1965 with the Hawks, as writer John Nevin has described, Dylan is like an avatar from the future come to claim his fate. His battle on the public stage encompasses both of his invented selves, the folk hero and the rock star, crossing a threshold that melts past and future saviors and current allies and enemies into one absurd moment in Manchester, England. I don't believe you. are the same people that tried to pin the name Judas on me, Dylan told Michael Gilmore decades later. Judas, the most hated name in human history. If you think you've been called a bad name, try to work your way out from under that. Yeah? And for what? For playing an electric guitar? As if that is in some kind of way 
equitable to betraying our Lord and delivering him up to be crucified? Dylan goes on to tell them all to rot in hell. Facing the enemy in scenes reminiscent of the cramps or black flag and raging antipathy with an enraged crowd, even if his and the Hawks crowd was more about tweed and rhythmic clapping in the UK. Dylan's tour of the UK, Scandinavia, Australia, and the US, 24 dates over 50 days, suggested a fury that Dylan in some ways encouraged, but more than all else, welled up out of something his music and persona had combusted in the world. In episode four, we spent time with Dylan in the law, Dylan the outlaw living outside the law but being honest. We've heard his admiration for Lenny Bruce and John Lennon, died in the wool rebels who went down fighting, for Jesse James, for Joey, and for the most famous rebel of them all, who Judas cast a finger upon. Like a mythic hero, great artists are vessels for the battles society must undertake. But it takes a little bit of time for rock and roll to figure this out. Consider Marlon Brando's Johnny, a character Dylan and his friends may have caught on the cusp of becoming teenagers themselves. Johnny was asked what he was rebelling against in the Touchstone 1953 film The Wild One, and he answered, have you got? First generation rockers like Johnny had will and attitude, catchy melodies, and great hair. They had Tutti Fruity too. But like another icon that so many future rockers like Bob Dylan would worship before finding their own spotlight, these were still, at least in some wider cultural sense, rebels without a cause. But by 1965, Dylan was offering contrarian takes on just about everything Johnny might have been rebelling against. Family, society, sex, work, race, and identity itself. 25 years old, calling out Roadmaps for the Soul in 1965, and called Judas. It was just a decade after the release of Bill Haley and his Comets, Rock Around the Clock. Ten years later, Bob Dylan had disrupted the landscape of popular music completely. On stages facing a cacophony of boos and complaints at first, rock itself emerged as a new kind of liberation movement, with long-playing liturgies on turntables and a pantheon of prophets, priests, shamans, and wizards lighting on stages and inside hearts all over the world. 
their names were simple at first, just like ours. John and Paul and Mick and Bob. And soon Jimmy and Janice and Joni too. But make no mistake, these were leaders of a mythic liberation movement. Homewreckers making bold claims. And soon the mythic names of the bands would tell of the ambition of rock and roll's liberation movement. The Doors, The Miracles, The Temptations, Black Sabbath, Earth, Wind and Fire, Credence Clearwater Revival, Journey, The Clash, Genesis, The Runaways, Nirvana, Destiny's Child, The Cure, N.W.A. Dylan was the godfather of this movement, exposing an electrifying and eclectic worldview, freeing popular music to kick up against common assumptions about purpose and pleasure. And he demanded contemplation, restless communion with a higher power, hunger for intellectual discovery, and contagious questions about the right way to live. was Judas, which is a ridiculous claim, of course, because he threatened the balance of society itself, just like rock and roll, when it's really good and when it's really doing its job. So it was here on the threshold of culture that will open up decades of challenge and change that Dylan entered the beginning of Act Two of the Monomyth. And this is the hero's descent or central ordeal. He reached the first peak of self-discovery and it was shocking and fierce. Jonah inside the whale, King Arthur on the battlefield of virtue between Lancelot and Guinevere, Harry Potter facing Voldemort, Buddha under the tree for six long years. This was a hero facing death. It's not clear who precisely knows the details of Bob Dylan's 1967 motorcycle crash outside of Dylan and a few of his intimates. But it's clear that creative immensity, drugs, exhaustion, and excruciating professional pressure found expression in a wreck that knocked Dylan off his feet, broke his back and his stride, and tripped up a trajectory that very well might have had a tragic rock and roll ending so common to the myth from Buddy Holly to Kurt Cobain of dying young and pretty. And it's here at the moment of the hero's descent, his ordeal, captured so profoundly in songs from 1965 to 67 like Visions of Johanna, Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands, and Like a Rolling Stone, where we will pause at this brush with mortality. Home, home on 
the deer and the antelope play Where seldom is heard A discouraging word And the skies are not cloudy all day Dylan is truly far, far away from home. But will his powers cease? What conflicts remain to be repeated or passed on or pressed on or overcome in the years ahead? And can a hero, a figure of our very modern times, writing about an entire nation's brushes with mortality, model what it means to get back on one's feet? and to find one's way after all of that chaos. And with that, how does it feel? We will have many answers to these questions in part two, none fully definitive perhaps, but all grounded in the raw mythic material that Bob Dylan released in the first stage of his journey and the material that's to come. How does it feel to be on your own? No direction home. How does it feel? Then I would not exchange my home on the range where the deer and the antelope play where seldom is heard a discouraging word and the skies are not cloudy all day. Oh, where the deer and the antelope play, where seldom is heard a discouraging word. And the skies are not cloudy all day. Rumors spreading round in that Texas town about the shack outside again. And you know what I'm talking about. Just let me know if you're gonna go to that whole mound on the range. They got a lot of nice girls. This has been part one of the ninth episode of Bob Dylan about man and God and law. In part two coming soon, we will truly try to bring it all back home with the final episode of season one. Find us along with show notes, song lists, and writing at 
www.mangodlaw.com. You can hear us everywhere podcasts are found. Rate and review the show if you will, because that really helps our project grow. We are proud to be part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Visit PantheonPodcast.com, podcast for music lovers, one and all. I'm Dr. Stephen Daniel Arnoff. And this is Bob Dylan about man and God and law. Thanks for coming. See you soon. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.